Hi, this is Jesse Brown, and you're listening to Canada Land, the weekly news and media podcast that brings you stories about Canada that are going to surprise you. We bring you into the most important conversations across the country with some of Canada's best journalists. And I've got something special for you today. Eight years ago, I had cartoonist Kate Beaton on this podcast, mostly because I just thought she was awesome and I wanted to talk with her. It was kind of hard finding the Canada Land angle, I thought, because, you know, there wasn't really anything about journalism in Kate Beaton's incredible webcomic, Hark a Vagrant. There wasn't really that much about the show's larger themes of having a look at the real Canada or peeling back our national mythology to see what this country's... No, this was just a cartoonist who I thought was awesome. Hark a Vagrant, her webcomic was so funny and whimsical and silly and weird. It was just like a series of jokes about like the Bronte sisters and sexy Batman. And there was some Canadian stuff. There was a gag cartoon about Lester B. Pearson. It was just really idiosyncratic and unique. And I love the way that she draws and I love the way her characters look. I just found the whole thing to be delightful, but not super serious. This was, after all, a gag cartoon. But as I was preparing for that interview and going through all of her stuff, there was one strip that was unlike anything else she had done. It was called Ducks, and it was a five-parter. It wasn't a gag cartoon with a joke at the end. And it was this short autobiographical reflection on the years that Kate Beaton spent working in Fort McMurray in the tar sands. So when she sat down to talk with me, that was really what I was curious to dig into. And she had so much to say about it. And I got really excited to learn that she was planning on expanding that five-part webcomic into some kind of a larger work. Well, eight years have passed. Kate Beaton has done a ton of stuff. She's created kids' books that I've read to my daughter. She's got an animated kids' show that is streaming now on Apple+. And she has just released a new book. It is a beautifully drawn, 436-page-long work of nonfiction called Ducks. It's a little bit funny, but mostly it's just, well, it's just something that I haven't been able to stop thinking about since I read it. And I think everybody should read it. And I'm going to talk to Kate Beaton about it. Hi, Kate. Hi. We talked about Ducks eight years ago. I can't believe it was that long. Yeah, eight years ago you had done a short version of it, yeah? Yes, that's right. And uh, I think you said, like, I got to do a book about this. Yes, it was on my mind at the time. And that was really just testing the waters to see if I could handle the scenes and the themes and if people were palatable to it, I think, if they would handle that kind of content from me. And they did. So... That having gone over well, I thought, okay, I've got a big project on my hands now if this is something I want to pursue. Was it just about whether the public was ready for it or whether your readers were ready for it or or were you still kind of like processing it and figuring it out? I knew at that point that I was ready to make it, but it was always going to be a large project to have to do. It was a big story to tell. And I had never done something that big before. And I was still updating my website, Harka Vagrant, at that time, and I was doing children's books, and I had a few contracts that were on my plate already. So I couldn't start it right away, but I had time to think about it 
That was 2014. And I made the book deal in 2016 for it. And even that was a long time ago. (laughs) I do not expect you to remember this, but I lit up when I first read the original Ducks and then talking about it with you and we were just sort of sharing thoughts because, I mean, nothing like your experience, but I had been to Fort McMurray just for like a few days, but it left a profound mark on me as like, this is the Canadian story that nobody's telling. This is the thing. Yeah, I do remember that part of our conversation. I remember, honestly, I think you wanted to talk about that more than anything else. (laughs) That was very telling. Congratulations on doing it. I mean, it's a major work. Thank you. It's such a departure as well. I guess it's like a, well, I don't guess. I mean, it is. It, 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 It is a work of journalism. In a sense, yes, it is. It's got a lot of stories to tell. On the surface, it is just like a memoir of my two years there, but I tried to fit in a lot of things that I saw and that stayed with me that I've been keeping inside that what are the things that sort of keep you up at night when you're thinking about it? Yeah. That's what's in the book. There's a lot that you wrestled with and unpacked and documented that I was the stuff that I was hoping you would get into in detail. But one of the major themes was something that, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily expecting though. I guess we touched on it a little bit, but I guess it's like the prevailing atmosphere or certainly one of the major themes. And, you know, it's one of the things that good literature does is allow the reader to experience something, you know, from somebody else's point of view that they wouldn't otherwise get to experience. And Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about here is you are surrounded by sexual menace. Yeah. And it's really compelling. Um, I don't know if that's the right word. Like it's, I don't know what that's like. But I don't think I appreciated what that must be like before I read your book. Well, I wanted to construct it in a certain way to make the book without narrative panels, for instance, that tell the reader what to think. I wanted to drop them in into the shoes of the protagonist, which was me, my character, I suppose, so that you have the empathy of being in that position, knowing as little as I did coming in there. And then if you've never been that vulnerable person, put into a place that is dangerous to you, where you become inured to the danger because it's just so persistent. And this is not just something that is particular to the oil sense. There's so many workplaces where there is sexual harassment or sort of a toxic atmosphere that breeds a a kind of uh, gendered hostility. And it can be very, very small things And I wanted to make that very clear to people, you know, because there are still lots of people out there who think that harassment is very cut and dry and that you should know who is going to hurt you. And that if you were in the shoes of somebody else, you would know exactly what to do. But that's not real life. The reality is that it's corrosive and it wears you down. And that by the time maybe something bad happens, you may not even see it coming. But everybody's situation is different, of course. But there were so many men out there who said to me all the time, you know, God, you must be so happy to be out here with all these men around. You have your pick. And I heard it all the time. You know, I wish I was in a place that had loads of women. I'd be so thrilled, I'd be happy. And uh, you could see that disconnect where, like, they couldn't see how frightening it was for you to be there, to be getting these comments all the time, and what that really meant. There's a scene where you're giving an interview 
to a Globe and Mail reporter. And, of course, they're interested in, oh, tell me kind of how horrible it is up there. Tell me about all the harassment. Mm -hmm. And the perspective that I might reflexively take to hearing you talk about how much sexual harassment there was from these working class guys of like, oh, that's really horrible. I certainly wouldn't be one of those guys. I would never act like that. You don't have a lot of time for that reflexive response. No, no, because you don't know until you're there. You don't know how you would be like in an environment where the culture around you is demanding that you sort of act that way, that you look away from those things that are happening, from racist jokes that are being made or by sexual commentary that's being made that was happening all the time. You know, no one ever jumped in and was like, don't do that. Actually, you know what? That is not true. My little sister came to work there for a while and... um She used to be bothered by someone on the bus who would come and talk to her. And then the boys in the back would be like, get away from that young girl. (laughs) She she don't want to talk to you. You're an old man. You know, they would, there were people who would come in and step in for you. So I'm not going to say nobody did. But there was just a lot of everybody becoming inured to that environment. Like, this is what happens here. And everybody likes to think that that's not going to be them. Nobody goes there thinking, I think I'm going to be an asshole. (laughs) I think think I'm going to turn into a piece of shit and I'm going to make women uncomfortable and I'm going to belittle the men uh, that I work with because I'm bored and unhappy. And that happened a lot too. It was not a healthy place in a lot of ways for a lot of people. And when people outside, they want a certain narrative to come out of it. Somebody told me once that people had tried to make different TV shows about Fort McMurray, but it was always like The Sopranos or something. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can just see it, right? Like dirty ass dudes, (laughs) crime men and and just like treating women badly and just like the worst kind of people. And that's what they want, because that's like the image that is very salacious to the rest of us. And we're like, oh, how disgusting is it? And how gross is it? And when you read certain exposés from the time when I was there, I think Rolling Stone did one and other people did one. Like they sort of had their ideas already. They came in and they wrote like, I showed up in the dirty town with the dirty men and the dirty trucks and it was just disgusting. And like they'll go to the strip bar and be like, the strip bar was here. And like I went inside and the reality is far more complex. And it doesn't make a good three page story because it's too densely complex. It's really difficult. And, you know, you have a a scene in the strip club. I do. It would probably belong in that Soprano-style version where, holy shit, these guys, they're flipping coins at the crotch of the performer. And this is like part of what happens there. And you tell the story of somebody heating up the coins with a lighter before doing this. And this is like, yeah, that's what we do. And then and then the, the performer picks up the change with a magnet. Yeah. You know, that is that, that scene would not escape the HBO version of this. It would not. There's no easy answers in anything that you discuss. It's something that you wonder about, because even as here you're saying to me, like, you don't know what you would do in a situation like that. And I certainly felt that. I certainly felt like, Check your sense of superiority here because this is a this is a, an extreme environment. And mm-hmm. it's an examination, your book, about how the veil of politeness or the way people act in one environment can change immediately when they're in an extreme environment and they're socialized differently. And that's all about this place changing people. And in some of the discussion in your book, Fort McMurray is sort of the culprit. Fort McMurray is described as a rat's cage. People do things there that they wouldn't do at home. They're bored and crazy. But you ask the question, are they 
they only doing that because they're here? Does this place change people? Or does it just expose how people really are? And you sort of blanch to think about your own men in your family, uncles and fathers. Like, would they be like that if they were here? And is this sort of stripping away some of the artifice of society and showing men for who they really are? It's a thing I don't have an answer for. And of course, there were so many people who never bothered you and who just worked and just did their jobs and it was fine. And um, a friend of mine even came up and he's not in the book, but he came and he took a job and he quit after like a few weeks. He was like, I've never been more disrespected in my life. I'm not going to work here anymore. Mm -hmm. Nobody has any respect for me. And I get yelled at all day. And he quit. And me and my other friend were like, "Mm, (laughs) we get yelled at all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And he was self-possessed enough to be like, this is not for me. At the time, were you the one saying, like, what did you expect? You better toughen up, Buttercup. Was that what, like... (laughs) (laughs) No, we were just like, we had been there for like a year and a half. And we were like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, people yell at you and make you feel like shit all the time. This is uh, what's going on. I mean, talking about it here, like, this is a good forum for discussing issues. And and sexual harassment is a very serious issue. and, And it's an issue that we've all become much more aware of. But that's not what art does or like it's show, don't tell. And what you illustrate is not an issue, but what it must be like, like what it is like to be corroded by that. The stats being thrown around in writing about your book, it's, you know, 50 men to one woman. I think, it, you know, you've remarked that it, it varies, but yes. you're surrounded and you live there. It's not like you go home at the end of the night when you were at the camps. And what you explore is not just like a catalog of the harassment but you're studying your own responses to it. And sometimes your pen lingers on you and how it's normalized and how you kind of like the small comments you absorb and accept and when you do and when you don't. And then there's also remarkable curiosity and empathy for the guys who are dishing this stuff out. Yeah, so they're stuck there with me as well. This is a book about class as much as anything too. A lot of the people that are in the book even though Fort McMurray is a very diverse place, my experience there was one surrounded by largely other Atlantic Canadians because people tended to sort of move within their own circles and get jobs around people that they knew and things like that. So when I say it's about class, you know, a lot of these people, they're coming from where I come from, which is a place that ships people out for work and has for many years. And we grew up knowing that we had to leave, that if you want a better life, you have to go to these places. Mm-hmm. And in some places where you'd go to work, you know, in the 70s, for instance, my mother's family all went to the car factories in Ontario. Those were communities where people lived. And in the camps outside of Fort McMurray, and I have to distinguish, there is the town of Fort McMurray and then there is the camps outside. Mm-hmm. These are places set apart from society. They vary in terms of how nice they are and and what amenities they have. But they are all cut off from society, from family, from community. They're a place where people are re-socialized. They're lonely places. And people change there. Here I am surrounded by people that are like me, that are being put in this place to live where your only value is your work. And there's a great access to things like drugs out there to solve your problems. Because at that time, discussions around mental health were almost non-existent. And the companies 
didn't really do that much about it. They preferred to have the image of happy workers and of X amount of man hours without incident. So it's not hard to have empathy when you see people struggling around you. We are used to companies treating us shitty. <laughs> From when they closed down all of the coal mines and the steel and everything like that. And I grew up throughout things like the Cod Moratorium and the Westray Mine Explosion. And you saw firsthand how people like you were valued and treated by corporations and governments early on. And that's who you're going out west with. The people like you. You know, that's class. I say in the beginning, we're the have-not region of a have-not province. One of the stories that I tell on my book tour is that I was in grade 11 when they shut down the Phelan mine in Cape Breton. It was the second last coal mine. And when they did it, they did it by shutting it down in the middle of the night before the last day of work so that when people showed up for work the next day, it was already closed. And like, you can just do that. You can just shut something down in the middle of the night and drive away so that you don't have to look at people's feelings the next day, where they lose their livelihood, that they've been terrified to lose for years at this point. Mm -hmm. They said in the papers, you know, we did this because we wanted to avoid a demonstration. And you can say that kind of thing with working class people because it implies that they're about to get violent. But when you read the news report from people walking away from the mine the next morning that they've been locked out of, they're crying. And, you know, these are the things that teach me as someone growing up in Cape Breton, this is how companies can treat you. Governments and companies, they do whatever they want. So when I went to Fort McMurray and I was treated badly by companies, you said Fort McMurray is the villain, but I would say it's corporations. I wasn't surprised. I was expecting it. Mm -hmm. These are the jobs that we are supposed to be lucky to have, that we're supposed to be grateful to have. We leave our home to have these jobs that we're brought up to say, be thankful to have any job. A bad job is a good job. You know, I never went out there expecting to have a good time. If you look at any of the headlines about Cape Breton in the 90s, they're all forecasting doom and sadness and people in charge and government and corporations and everything, just getting away with literal murder when it comes to things like Westray. You didn't go there expecting to have a good time. Nobody goes there to have a good time. Nobody goes there for any reason but one. And I've been thinking about it. You know, it's been in the back of my head since I went there, but it's been primary since I read your book. Like, what is that place? And why did it strike me the way that it did? This is a place in Canada, it strips away a lot of our polite fictions about what Canada is and why it exists. Like, no one goes to Fort McMurray because they're, like, yearning for freedom, you know? what we, we tell ourselves that people come to Canada for the freedom or for the wonderful lifestyle. Nobody goes to Fort McMurray for, like, the schools mm -hmm. or for the great neighborhoods or for community. People go to Fort McMurray for money, and that's it. They do, but in a sense, it is that Canada that you're talking about because Fort McMurray is full of immigrants. It has a huge immigrant population because they are coming there for money too, obviously. But they also bring with them hope. They bring with them young families. And this is also true of the Atlantic Canadians and other parts of Canada that come with their young families. And they made Fort McMurray, the town itself, boom. And this is not the camps where I spent most of my time. 
but in the town. And young families are not going to let a town just be full of, you know, wild young men burning everything to the ground. They're going to start yoga, jogging or whatever the heck. (laughs) They're going to make it a place that they're, you know, they're going to work hard to make it a place that they're proud to live in. Which is why, of course, they're so defensive about all the stereotypes that are in and around Fort McMurray. And you can't blame them because when people come in, they're like, what a shithole. They're like, get out of my home. Yeah. And I wonder, and I've been wondering, how much that is exactly the same for anywhere else that we might talk about. Like, why does this country exist? People came here to extract things from it for money. And at a certain point, community grows from that. Yeah, you can't go somewhere to raise your kids and have it not be their community. Like, you're, people are going to build communities there. And, and Fort McMurray is a city that is, it's a unique city, but it's a city. See, this is what I'm going back and forth about in my head since reading your book, because on the one hand, I'm not like an Old Testament or very spiritual or or even like fire and brimstone, but like the word that kept coming to mind is this is an evil place. You know, it's it's a stolen place. The way people live there, what they're there for, how could it produce anything? It's all throughout your book and how, you know, you think you can just kind of, you're 22, you can pay off your student loans and it's not going to, no, it's going to make an imprint on you. It's going to change you. And the basic thing that is happening there, the industry that is happening, and it's one that everybody is implicated in, but just not so directly, mm-hmm. is itself an evil to our planet, right? I'm not trying to preach here, no. but it just did seem like the sort of heart of darkness in a certain way, and it's an exploration of evil. And then on the other hand, there's like one panel that blew my mind to see it because they're watching Deadwood. Yeah, we're watching Deadwood. <laughs> Tell me about that yeah. panel. Why is that panel there? Because we did watch Deadwood. I bought the box set of Deadwood DVDs from the Blockbuster in Fort McMurray, and we watched them in the camp, me and my friends, because it was 2006, and it was on DVD. And then you're watching it, and you're like, ha-ha, this is Deadwood. (laughs) (laughs) But we watched the whole thing there at the time. And that was an exploration of a boomtown mm-hmm. at a certain time. And it was a show that talked about the ills of society as it goes through that as well. And like how evil people can be. The book is so long because it had to contain all of these different things, right? Like what I was just saying about people coming there with hope and coming for their families and coming for money and me being part of this sort of like displaced amount of maritimers who go there, sort of push there through these economic forces and the way that we're used to companies treating us. And yet there we are working for a company like Syncrude that just planted itself right next to Fort Mackay, which is an indigenous settlement. And so close that the first time that I drove by it and there's a sign that says Fort Mackay, I thought that it was another oil Mm -hmm. place. I thought it was another mine or something because it was so close to Syncrude. And then someone said, no, that's a town. I was like, that's a town? It's so close to the mine. And the mine is huge. You know, it's billowing smokestacks and stuff. And and Suncor is right next to it as well. And, you know, I was reading a thing about like Métis elders' recollections of, of like the past from that area. And they were talking about like how there was these conversations with the oil companies, but they weren't really conversations, were they? It was going to happen. And as soon as the oil companies got what they wanted, everyone else cut out of the picture and and it happened. And and they're huge and they're gigantic polluters. And so the people talk about 
stuff like how the berries don't taste the same and how the trees have sort of shriveled around there and, and how the landscape has changed. And and in my book, I show Selena Harp, the Cree elder, and she's talking about how there are these increased rates of cancer. And I think there are increased rates of asthma and things too among there in, in Fort Mackay and Fort Chip. And you would think like, oh my God, this is so awful. And why doesn't anybody care? But that's classic Canada, isn't it? That it's not news and that no one does seem to care that there are these rare cancers in the community. And no one cares that the berries taste different. And when the ducks flew into the pond, the tailings pond in 2008, that made international news that are not the first animals to be hurt by this gigantic industry. And it was almost farcical because there were so many ducks. There were like 1,500 ducks that flew into a tailings pond and died. And it was a huge thing. I mean, they've covered the New York Times. It made international news. And like the oil companies had to come out with their cap in their hand and be like, I'm so sorry this happened. We'll do anything we can to make sure it doesn't happen again. Big mistake. And meanwhile, people are dying of cancer. Like, like fuck off. And at the same time, you know, because I would go into work and I'd be reading like CBC every day or something. I remember reading articles about people catching like look at the indigenous people trying to turn their sound this alarm, like they're they're catching fish that have like cancerous lesions on the side mm-hmm. and stuff. But no one gave a shit about that because no one cares about like a fish with like a weird bump on it. They care about like all these ducks flying into the pond because the ducks are like, that's like a visual that people can really rally around. And it is sad about the ducks. It is. But it is also sad that people are suffering around there and no one cares. And I, I know that it's not that cut and dry. Like Fort Mackay is very like economically entwined with oil sands now and very prosperous because of that. But they also didn't really have a lot of choice, did they? It was either do that or be sort of crushed by what was right beside you. So I'm not very comfortable speaking on or for people, but you can't help notice where you are mm-hmm. and notice what's going on around you and, and what people are paying attention to and what they're not. So nobody is going to care about the fish. Uh, No one's going to care about the fact that the berries taste different or that a a way of life that goes back for millennia for the indigenous communities there is poisoned. No one's going to care about your colleague who got killed. The ducks works as a headline. It works as an image. Canadian cities exist because once upon a time there were things to take and you needed to have, you know, places for people to live. But then eventually it kind of takes on a life of its own. I don't know if Fort McMurray is going to it's going to outlive the oil reserves. I don't know. They really galvanized as a community after the fire. Mm-hmm. But I haven't been back since I left. How do you think you'd be received? I really don't know. Someone from my village ran for mayor there last time they had an election. Like, there is representation from my area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but nobody has written me any um, hate mail. Actually, people who grew up in Fort McMurray have written to me saying that that they found it to be an honest depiction of a place that they knew, which is really all that I strive for. I was speaking very passionately there, but I wasn't like, I got to stick this book to the man. (laughs) But the, the point of the book was to make an honest depiction of things that I saw. And of course, you, you can't help but be biased in something that you're making because I was drawing the scenes out. And I choose what to put in and what to leave out. But my main goal was to say, like, I I hope if somebody reads this who has been there, they will find familiarity in it. Because otherwise, I I haven't done my job. Because you're talking about a place that most of us, 
and I say most of us like in the, in the country, are not familiar with and have vague notions of built up from images of gigantic trucks and of politicians, things that they've said or or like headlines that you've browsed. And the notion that like oil and gas and environment and things, you know, you have opinions on those things, but you don't know what it's like in the camps mm-hmm. or within the community. And that's the story that I wanted to tell. So as we've been saying, it's a story about class. It's a story about work and what people have to do for work. Yeah. So I'm talking about class and the environment and all of this stuff being linked together and about cancer. And I grew up in Cape Breton. This was the home to the Sydney tar ponds, which was for the longest time the largest toxic waste site in North America. And it was in the middle of the town. It was in the middle of Sydney. Like people's houses were around it. And uh, it was runoff from Sydney Steel, which is one of the big employers in town. It gave people cancer. Cape Breton has one of the highest cancer rates in the country. And I remember the government officials and stuff calling it a boondoggle, which is like a stupid name for something that kills people. Because you would hear people in Whitney Pier and stuff talking like, everybody on my street has cancer. And it's important to note, too, that it was the neighborhoods that were closest to the tarpons were the, the neighborhoods in Sydney that were the least white. And I don't think they cleaned it up until like the late 2000s. But, you know, sometimes people talk about, like, how do you feel about being, like, so complicit in going to the oil sands and, like, being part of these things that destroy the environment? And I, I feel like that's such a privileged question to ask. Like, for me, I grew up around that. And we were used to companies and governments doing exactly what they wanted to do. And for us to just have to go along with it and and be grateful for the job. Because I feel like sometimes when you are in the working class, when you are in industrial working class, you are part of the environment that is destroyed by corporations while they make money your body is worth nothing. And um, I don't know if people asking those questions have ever been to a wake or funeral without a body, but I had when I was nine because I went to Angus Joseph McNeil's funeral. He was one of the Western miners whose bodies was never recovered. And I remember that very clearly and nobody ever went to jail for it, even though the government and the corporation were both basically criminally responsible for the deaths of 26 people who were all people from in and around working class Nova Scotia. These are all things that tell me what I need to know about jobs that I'm supposed to be grateful to have. I wasn't surprised by the environmental degradation in Fort McMurray when I went out there. I grew up with it. And I wasn't surprised by the way that corporations treated people because I grew up with that too. It's part of class. It's part of a bigger story of how Canada works. And it doesn't absolve me from participating in an industry like that or the things that bother me. But it is something that is often missing from the commentary that people have to say about the book because they can only read it from their position. 
and maybe they don't know that much about the levels of Canadian class structure or what happens in working class societies that are so bumped up against the power of corporations and government. What about your work? You know, you, you write in the book, a 21-year-old version of yourself says that um, you've learned that you can either have opportunity or you can have home. Mm-hmm. You can't have both. Do you have both now? I do. I buck the trend. <laughs> but uh, 21-year-old me could not have foreseen the internet coming or what that would mean, at least the internet as we know it today. Yeah. And so being able to work from home being able to come here and do what I do, that is quite remarkable. And I will say that Cape Breton is like, it is changing. It's not the same as when I was growing up. There are people moving home. There are young people moving home. And it is really nice to see because it seemed like the population was going off a cliff when I was young. In this area, of course, uh, the Mi'kmaq population is and always always been steady and growing. But the... uh, the sort of settler population around was was very, very much in decline. The uh, ability to move home and to raise my family here around my home is a real gift. I mean, I'm very grateful. Thanks for talking with me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. That is your Canada Land episode. If you're new to this show, or if you have not listened to Canada Land in a while, I want to invite you to follow Canada Land in your podcast app. Twice a week, our journalists bring you news and conversations, the kind that honestly can be hard to find these days. Our job is to tell you about things you don't know, things you need to know. Just search for Canada Land in your podcast app. We're on Twitter at Canada Land, our website, canadaland.com. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and our technical producer. I am your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.